We're focusing our next four weeks on the, on the concept of becoming more like a child. Jesus said in Mark 10, 14 to 16, Let the children come to me, don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who receives the kingdom of God like a child will, unless they, sorry, let me say, I'll tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and he placed his hand on their heads and he blessed them. Today we're going to focus on the concept of Racing ahead. Go back. Go back. Go back. There we go. All right. That God is for us. Oh, that's small. That didn't work out so well either. Can you all see that? Good. All right. Today we're focusing on that concept. And I entitled my sermon A Return to Innocence. He is not against us. Uh, I want you to think about this phrase. Our actions do not block the view that God has of us. The Bible very clearly describes, outlines and carefully explains that he loves us. And if he loves us, the key word in that phrase beside God is us or me. He loves me, not the things I do or don't do. In Romans 8.31 it says, Nothing can separate us from God's love. What shall we say about such a wonderful thing as this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? I think the only thing that can really be against us is our idea of God. And I think we're very quick to put our idea of God in front of God. And that's something that I'm going to explore a little bit today. Um, his, but I want to just re- reinforce. His love remains above, below, all around us. It's all-encompassing. A judgmental and vindictive God is clearly a constant misinterpretation of him. Because we see the length at which Paul especially goes to, to describe that it's not through our own actions that we are made acceptable to him. Only through the acts of Jesus and God's love abounds beyond all of what we might perform. I'll say that again, all of what we might perform, good and bad. We love to talk about our bad actions and get all guilty and feel shame about them. But those things that we do that we think are good are equally as irrelevant in many ways. So, number two, as you've already seen, is God loves me. Just a little thing about this PowerPoint. I kind of do well with it at the start, and then as I get towards the end of the sermon, I kind of forgot about it, so you'll have to listen then. (laughs) So uh, where does the tantrum child come in? Um, I was intrigued with this story of uh, the return uh, or the the loss of innocence. The story in Genesis chapter 3. And on Tuesday I was doing some research into this. This is probably the most prepared I've ever been for a sermon. Uh, I think with all the way that we do things now, it's great because I was like chilled. It was awesome. 
But on Tuesday, I was doing some research, reading the story there, seeing where it led me, getting on interlinear Bibles and and searching Greek and Hebrew words and all that kind of lovely stuff, which, sadly enough, I really enjoy. Um, but it got to a point um, I was reading and following and linking, and all of a sudden, uh, I looked to Rachel, and she was, I think, just looking on the internet for something, Christmas presents or something. And I, I looked at her and I stared at her for a second. I said, Rachel, I'm literally having my mind blown right now. And then I took a deep breath and I said, I have no way, I have no idea how I'm going to actually present this. On cue, good. So um, we're going to have a go and we'll see where it takes us. Um, if you've got a Bible, and if you can get one of these, our first place we're going to go to is really easy to find. It's on page four. So if you can look that up, I will also. It's not really page four because there's about 1,500 pages before it starts, but it's the number four. So we're in Genesis. Now, just recapping, you know what's happened before this. We've got the creation story. Then we've got, oh, another creation story. And then we've got this story. And we're going to have a little investigate and have a look what this story really is all about. So I'm going to read uh, from verse 1 down to verse 7. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the, gar- or any of the trees in the garden? Of course we, must, we, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it for if you do you will die (sighs) you won't die the serpent replied to the woman god knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will become like god knowing both good and evil the woman was convinced she saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened. They suddenly felt, what's the word there? Shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves up. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves up. That was a real last-minute thing, wasn't it? We all use different sorts of things to make to cover up things in our life that we know about ourselves, and we and we try and make them appropriate for what we perceive others will see as acceptable. As we grow, we learn to wear better fig leaves, don't we? 
But the reality is that it doesn't matter how fancy your fig leaf is. It's still just shame and hiding. A freedom in name alone from which there is only the semblance of choice. Like one might choose to sit in the corner of a prison cell. Everything that is presented here in this story, I believe, is about Adam and Eve's choice. So what follows here in verses 11 to 19 is the consequence of a chosen path. Many read this next section as God visiting vengeful justice on naughty children who have outgrown their learning period and should have known better. Right here in the first book of the Bible, through our own assumptions of what is being said, we interpret God as some kind of big tax collector in the sky. We judge God based on the way that we might go about dealing with wayward people ourselves, forgetting that God is not intimidated by our actions, right or wrong. Now, if we've established that already, why does it change when we look at this story? And it's an important story. It's the, well, really, it's the third story in the Bible. And if we get our picture from God from here and we start on a journey about knowing God from this point, we really better get it right. So, my next point. I think I might have missed one. Have I? Yes, that one. Eyes open and equals shame and hiding. And we judge God the way that we judge other people. All right. When we read further, we find that we, what we think is evidence to support our view of a judgmental God. Um, I'm not going to read all those verses in 11 to 19. Um, if you want to read them at some time, I think you probably all know what it says there. Um, they get told what they can and can't do and what's going to happen. And um, what I find terribly interesting is what follows that. So we're going to have a real detailed look at that. When we read further what we find we think is evidence to support our view of a judgmental God, in verse 23 we see the word banish and sending them out. In verse 24 it says in, um, in some translation, and sets a guard to keep them from the tree. Sounds convincing about a judgmental God or a, a God bent on justice when we see that story. But looking at the story as I understand the God that I know, it sounds to me not like God at all. Looking at the story now, I have that advantage of a revelation of Jesus, the revealing of the true nature of God. I know that he is loving. I know that he, that he is for me. I know that he is loving and slow to anger that he has a forgiving spirit. So it gives me pause. Perhaps this is not like God at all. One of the first questions I get from the story is, uh, let's just read the next bit that comes after 19. 
Um, where are we? So in verse 20. So Jesus, or God, has just given out these, you know, here, justice, boom. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins and his wife, and for Adam and his wife. All right, so let's just have a look at that for a second. He's just dealt this justice action. And what does Adam do? Oh, you know what? I'm going to name my wife Eve. That'd be really cool because she's going to have lots of children. Do those two things sit together? Naughty, 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 naughty. I'm going to name my wife Eve. But what's even, even more strange is the next thing. When God responds to, you're going to name your wife Eve, God says, hmm, hang on, just before you go, why don't I get you some clothes that are going to last you a little bit longer than those fig leaves that you sorted out for yourselves? So to me, I very much see a contradiction here. Now what's contradicting? Is it my, is it my reading? Is it the Bible? Or is it my perception of God that I come to the story with? In the context of this last statement, is it possible that God, in verses 11 to 19, is warning them about what's actually out there and questioning their decision to leave? Then realising their resolve, he says, well, at least let me give you some clothes that are going to last. Let's read verse 23. Actually, let's do 22 first. Then God said, Look, human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. Let's hold it there for a second. We see the word banished, and this interpretation of a word, of a Hebrew word, I'm not going to go into what those Hebrew words is, but I'm going to tell you what they mean. The word banished there does not give the Hebrew justice. It doesn't have the full intent of the meaning. The word does have the idea of being pushed, pushed up or given up or left, but it also has the idea of a parent letting its child go, letting him leave home, or a seed being sown, or a shot being shot forth, or to stretch out. This changes it considerably. Why did they choose that word, banished? Is it because we already had that idea of God, or we, that's what we thought about God? In the first part of verse 24, this continues. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the garden. I'll stop there. We see the word, uh, in the first part of verse 24, we see that God again says, sending them out. This, words, this word means to dispossess or to give up ownership of, or even to divorce. And it seems, or oh, maybe he is being a little bit judgmental and vindictive here. However, what's interesting is not the meaning of the word, 
And this is what I, I, I marvel at now. Like we've got computers and we can just do a search of where these words come from or where they're repeated or how many times they're stated. So interesting fact, you know, what's the most, uh, the most prominent noun in the Bible? It'll be surprising, I'm sure. It's God. It's said about 16,000 times in the Bible or the idea of God. The second is also interesting. It's man or humankind. And it's about half as many. And then the third one is also interesting. It's children. And half as many is again. So we've got 16,000, 8,000 times and 4,000 times. Um, the Bible is so intricately written. I'm, I'm blown away by it every time I start to dig. And here is no exception. So when we look into this word and why I'm saying this is because this particular word is only used seven times in the Bible. Seven times in the whole Bible. Well, what's that about? And so I decided, well, let's have a look. What are all these verses saying? When it talks about what seems to be a judgmental action. So we look into the verses and they're all found in the Old Testament. And they're, all just, they're literally all resting on the idea of God returning the Israelites to the promised land. Every single one of them. So the only odd one out is this one, and it's about where they lost it. Isn't that interesting? I think maybe there's something in that. So when we say, when we read that verse and we hear that God sends them out, is it possible again that this is something that they were, cho- they were choosing? That this is something that they were actually wanting? This to me, this idea of God, sounds a lot more like the God I want to know and the God that I've come to know. The story being told here is just the beginning. It's the story of a God bound by integrity, honour and justice, accused of favouritism, backed into a corner and forced to let his children walk out into a dangerous world full of deception, shame and greed sounds to me like the story of the prodigal and what does god do next the rest of verse 24 uh yeah 24 after sending them out god stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the garden and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the to the tree of life when we read it like that to guard the way to the tree of life. It sounds awful a lot like God's got this big, dirty big angel with a flaming sword, not just a sword, a flaming sword, to guard the way. You know, you ain't coming back here, buddy. No way. Let's have a look at these words. The word cherubim is here, is used here, and there is no misunderstanding what this word means. It literally means angelic being. There's no transliterations of it. There's no other forms of it. It's just this word. Um, How are we going with this? I might press it and see what happens. Hmm. Yep, we're not up to that one yet. All right. So this is interesting. This word is used 90 times in the Bible and in 40 different verses. And the meaning is simply that. 
But what is interesting is the context again, where this word is used, always used. In 39 other cases, this word is used in exactly the same situation. And here it is at the Garden of Eden. So my mind would immediately say, this is part of that group, just like the other six and the seventh. So here we go. Every time this word is used in the context of of protection of the word of God or where the presence of God dwells or speaks from. These cherubim are the angels that sit on the Ark of the Covenant. would be kind of cool to have a picture of that, but I don't. Um, You all know what the Ark of the Covenant is, that Ark that Moses built with two... You see all the pictures of them and they're, they're literally like this little Ark with a couple of little cute angels sitting on the side. It was massive. It was the angels were bigger than the ceiling. Their wings went up like that. It was huge, and we get that description in some of those other verses. Um, the cherubim are the angels that sit in the ark of the covenant. What is more interesting about this is that this place, these two cherubim, sit to cover or protect what is called in between those two. Does anyone know? It's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is where God's presence speaks to Moses. An awesome verse in Numbers chapter 7 verses 8 and 9 where Moses walks in and there's this cloud, this dense cloud in between those massive angels and it's the voice of God that comes out from there. And there's these texts later on where literally it talks about how God gets up and leaves the temple and they never hear God's voice again. Confronted with the presence of God or the word of God and its revelation to humanity, that space is, is always referred to as the space of atonement, the place where we are made right, justified or brought back into oneness with God, healed from the separation that we asked him for at the loss of innocence. These cherubim aren't wielding a justice sword. They are the protectors of the presence of God. They place the place where God dwells, it is the place that is visited once a year by the high priest and it is a place where forgiveness is given. In the next part of that same verse, he places that flaming sword that flashes back and forth. Why do they say that? Is it some kind of gauntlet to see if he can get through? I don't think so. My mind immediately went, you just imagine this sword flailing back and forward to me it sounds a lot more like some kind of light if we look at the meaning of that flashing backward and forth it actually has the idea of spinning around in all directions and it's guarding the way to the tree of life some versions go so far as as i said earlier to say keep them from entering the garden, but that is not a fair translation at all. The intention of this phrase is clearly to watch, preserve, to keep, that a thing might not be lost, to watch as one might would a treasure, 
And the flaming sword flashing back and forth or spinning in all directions sounds more to me like a signal for a way back to that treasure. It's not Adam and Eve that are kept out, but the way that is kept safe. Is it any wonder that when we go to the New Testament, and you've probably had a sense of this now where my mind started getting blown, is it? is that when we get to the New Testament, we find the book of John. Jesus described as the creator and the word of God becoming flesh. He's described as the protector of the way. He's even, he even claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. He is the good shepherd that leads us to the gate. The very food that gives life, and he is the resurrection and the life. Adam and Eve weren't kicked out of the garden. The garden was lost to them through their choice. God could not save them from their choice, but he could preserve the choice for another day when opportunity was different. The message here is not about an angel keeping them out, but that the way back home has not been lost. A child is not our only offspring. It is also our gift to the future, is not only our offspring, it is also our gift to the future. It is what we offer the world. We birth all kinds of choices. With our words and actions and those choices grow into things that we may be proud of or embarrassed about. But ultimately we only have ourselves to blame for what we birth. Adam and Eve choose to leave a prodigal, excited as a prodigal, excited with a head full of visions of their future, like how many children they're going to have and what they're going to name them. What was God worried about? Their clothes. Adam and Eve choose to leave like that, but we all know how that turned out. We experience it every day. But it's the parent... The father is the one who bears the cost of the child leaving and getting into trouble. The parent pays the insurance, and for us that insurance is Jesus. Jesus is the sword that flashes backward and forth, spinning in all directions. He is standing at the door knocking. So the story here is not one of punishment, rather more of a story of that moment in a child's life when innocence is lost. And the drawer of the mystery of the world is greater than the safety of home. I'll say that again. A story of that moment in a child's life when innocence is lost and the drawer of the mystery of the world is greater than the safety of home. It's the story of a father who reluctantly allows his child to leave, yet does his best to equip the prodigal child to survive, or constantly hoping for their return. Jesus here fulfills the promise that is made in the Garden of Eden by placing an angel to preserve the way. From a loving parent who knew what they were in for, what he was in for, instantly makes preparation for the possibility of their return. Jesus presents himself as that angelic being, 
flailing about with a sword, ablaze like a beacon, beckoning us to follow the path to innocence. Like the father of a prodigal, he looks to the horizon every day in hope of your return. It's clear God really is for us. He really does love us beyond our unthinkable actions. He is not laying down in wait to surprise us with justice. It's the contrary. He's actively seeking us out and with passionate and merciful heart calling us 